0: My name is Suzanne Nasser, and I am a full-time faculty member in the Counseling and Career Development Center. On behalf of um, my fellow Arab Heritage Month Committee members, Sunda Smadi McCarthy, Nina Shoman Kip Kozad, Tamima Farouki, Rena Judah, Kashif Shah, and Shada Farouk, I'd like to welcome you all to today's presentation. Before I introduce the topic and our amazing presenters, I'd like to thank the Celebrating Diversity Task Force and Marine um, Valley for giving us the opportunity year after year to celebrate Arab Heritage Month. I'd also like to thank um, Troy Swanson and all of the library faculty and staff uh, for welcoming us into this awesome space year after year. I'd also like to thank our instructors, Mike McGuire, Mary Fafelis, Dr. Mahaswais Debabna, Kip Kozad, and any other teachers that are in the house uh, for bringing your students today. For those of you that are unfamiliar with Arab Heritage Month, it has been celebrated here in Chicago since 1991 when the Advisory Council on Arab Affairs successfully lobbied the city council to honor Arab Heritage during the month of November. How many of you knew that November was a designated month to celebrate Arab Heritage? Show of hands. Cool, so some of you. It was created to help eliminate discrimination, bigotry, and racism against people of Arab descent by educating the public about Arab culture, civilization, and contributions to society. It is also an opportunity for us as Arabs to rejoice about who we are and to take pride in our rich culture, history, and traditions, especially at this difficult time in which Arabs and Muslims are criminalized, scapegoated, and politically attacked every day. We all know there is a huge number of Arab students here, and Moraine Valley has a long standing tradition of participating in Arab Heritage Month and supporting this population. Every year, my colleagues and I, along with our hard working Arab Student Union and Muslim Student Association members, respectively look forward to celebrating this month on campus with all of you. It has afforded us the opportunity to put together numerous educational, social, and political events like today's, no ban, no wall, standing with our immigrant communities, in which we will hear from representatives of two of the most important organizations in Chicagoland, the Arab American Action Network, also known as AAAN, and Organized Communities Against Deportation, also known as OCAD. So I'd like to now (laughs) introduce our um, speakers. I'll start with Basim uh, Khawar, who's to my far left over there. Basim graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from DePaul University, where he was a student organizer. He is one of the leading community organizers in the Arab community of Chicagoland. He was a full-time field worker for the Chewy Garcia for mayor campaign in 2015 and a staff organizer for the Arab American Action Network for almost two years before recently becoming the advocacy specialist for the national campaign to take on hate. Bassam is passionate about uplifting his community and believes that organizing and community development are the most effective approaches. Today, he will discuss the implications of the Muslim travel ban, an executive order signed by Trump on January 27th, which immediately barred immigrants and non-immigrant visitors from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the US. We are also excited to have with us today, Rodrigo Ansores. Rodrigo is originally from, fill in the blank, Rodrigo. Uh, Aguascalientes, Mexico. Thank you. And was raised in Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood. He holds a Bachelors of Science in Statistics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign with heavy coursework and economic analysis. Rodrigo started organizing with OCAD in 2016 and is currently supporting their policy and deportation defense work. In his day job, Rodrigo works at the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance working with inspiring young people and writing LGBTQ centric policies for school districts across the state. Outside of work, Rodrigo loves spending time with his family, being outdoors, and trying new fruits. His focus today will be on DACA and OCAD's work of fighting detention, deportations, and criminalization. So before I turn it over to our presenters, um, we have a couple of students who really called on their courage and wanted to share uh, their journey with all of you. One of them, with permission, um, has asked me to read um, her story to all of you, Uh, so I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, Karina, who will also be sharing um, her family's journey with all of you. Um, I've had the privilege to work with Karina and the other young student um, who asked me to share her story, and um, I want to thank them for trusting me um, with their story, and for being so brave and so bold um, in being here with us today. So I'll go ahead and um, read one of our students' uh, story and then I'll turn it over to you. Okay. I am a dreamer. I would love to be standing here before you today and sharing my story face to face. However, due to the fear that has lied within me for as long as I can recall, I won't fully disclose my identity to you. I'll tell you this, I'm an Arab Egyptian 19 year old female and I would love to say that I am an Arab American but we'll discuss why I can't say that later. Let me start by explaining my fear. According to USA Today the Department of Homeland Security ICE agents have been able to deport 10,845 individuals between January 22nd and April 29th of 2017 since Trump took office. Due to everything that I have been through this year, personally, I am overwhelmed with the thought that at any time I can be captured from the place that I call home since I was four and sent to some foreign country that I can't really relate to. Unfortunately for an undocumented person, for a dreamer, there is no safe haven these days. Let me take you on my journey. I come from Egypt as a 19-year-old female and again, I'd love to describe myself as an Arab American, but unfortunately, due to my current residency status, which is undocumented, I can't label myself that. It has to do with something as simple as a laminated piece of paper called a green card. In April of 2004, my family came to the United States and I call Illinois home. After all, I did come here when I was just four years old and I don't remember much about the country of my, my country of origin. As a child growing up, English was my first language and I learned Arabic throughout the years. My family came to the U.S. so we can have better health care, education, and career opportunities. I was just in preschool and my mom stayed at home to take care of us and my dad worked a minimum job as a hairstylist. Although being a hairstylist wasn't my dad's major in college, um, he did what he could to get us by here in the U.S. My dad holds a degree in chemical engineering and my mom has a degree in accounting, but these degrees became invalid when they moved to the US. My dad came here on a worker's visa and overstayed his visa. And although on multiple occasions he tried to apply for his green card but was denied at every turn. People will always tell me that I have a big smile and that I seem to never take anything seriously because I am constantly laughing. However, it's true when people say looks can be deceiving. To be undocumented in the U.S. is one of the biggest struggles and setbacks anyone can ever face. The fact that you are never safe in a place you call home because of the high risk of deportation is something we face every day. These thoughts are always on my mind even when I decide to do something as simple as going to the grocery store or even driving to school. The reality of being undocumented hit me hard during high school. It started when my classmates were enrolling in driver's ed and getting their driver's license. During my last year of high school, it was time for me to apply for colleges and scholarships and to really decide on a major. Ever since I could remember, I've always dreamt of becoming a doctor, but little did I know that in order to practice in the medical field in the US, you have to be a legal resident. However, that did not stop me from pursuing my dream. I set out to apply for my dream school, only to find that I was not eligible to receive financial aid. As you can imagine, trying to figure out trying to figure out that pursuing my dream as a doctor would be almost impossible due to my residency status and also because I do not, nor do any undocumented students receive financial aid. This took a big toll on my confidence and on my motivation. I felt hopeless. My parents can only do so much for me as they already had a lot on their plate. Still, wanting to be ahead and do what I've always dreamt of, I graduated high school as a junior and made the most of my life. The best graduation gift I received was my work permit in the mail. I applied for the DACA program a few months back and had forgotten all about it. You could say it was God's way of telling me everything comes in perfect timing. I could could finally apply for my driver's license and now get a state ID, but most importantly, I could apply to college. The DACA program has allowed the Dreamers to be eligible for work permits, driver's license, and to enroll in school. That summer, I decided to enroll in the CNA program at Moraine, Certified Nursing Assistance Program. The following year, I spent a year working full-time to make my dream of becoming a doctor a reality. Although being a CNA was hard, I stuck with it because it made me one step closer to my dream. Everything seemed to be going well until Trump took office. They are trying to repeal DACA despite the many efforts people are taking to save it. The DACA program gave 800,000 dreamers hope and now it's slowly fading into the shadows again. Our future is in their hands and we must be strong and we must fight. To be a dreamer is to have different layers of personality from the hopeful, innocent, and dreamy layer to the hardworking, dedicated, and strong layer to days of hiding in the shadows and living in fear because you are reminded of the deportations taking place. Today, I'm showing you all of the la- all showing you all the layers that make up my personality. I'm thankful for how far I've come, and I'm thankful to be supported by such an amazing group of classmates, professors, friends, and family. I'm thankful to call Moraine Valley my second home because if it wasn't for the support this school has shown to the dreamers, I wouldn't be here today telling you my story. Next, we have Karina.
1: Hi, my name's Karina. I don't know if you could all hear me. Good. A little quiet? Okay. Sorry, all right. So my name's Karina and I'm 21 years old. This is my fifth semester here at Marine Valley Community College. And right now, I am working in my associate's transfer in arts and I'm hoping Hopefully, i um, hoping to transfer into UIC in order to get my bachelor's in political science and eventually using that to go into law school. So um, my dream was always to go into immigration a lot because of my experiences that I have within my family and my community as well. Um, I'm sure you might all be thinking, she's probably a dreamer. Unfortunately, I'm not. I was born and raised here in the city of Chicago. Um, However, I'm here to speak in regards to my family, which most of them are undocumented. So it's not easy to talk within my family situation. Most importantly, in regards to my dad, because for my dad, he is undocumented. And for me, I always live in fear in regards to like anything such as if he goes to work. I'm afraid that I'm never, I'm never going to see him ever again. Um, but however, speak coming over here and speaking in front of you guys is kind of hard for me. Uh, but my dad told me to speak up and speak out. So here I am today speaking in regards to um, my father and how he is as a person. And that not what you, what you guys hear on the TVs or anything in the news is not what you guys think it is. My dad's someone to be proud of. He works very hard and helps his family to strive and become someone better in the future. He values education and encourages me to do well in school. He's someone that is involved in the community and volunteers with our church. So he's someone that you might call an example of a perfect American. He doesn't involve in crimes. He's verily outside doing anything bad. He doesn't sell drugs. He's not a rapist. So he's not one of the names that Trump called in regards to many of immigrants. um. The only reason why I'm here is that I wanna point out these things because our administration says that the exact opposite of us and they were all supposedly bad hombres and that we are rapists and that we are criminals. I'm here to ask you guys to challenge these these hateful comments and to challenge the policies that impact our families. Thank you and
2: thank you for hearing out.
0: Okay, thank you to our um, students and their testimonies. I'd now like to turn it over to Basim and um, we will have time for Q&A at the end of um, their talk.
3: All right, good morning everyone. Can everyone hear me well? Loud enough? uh i would like to start by thanking suzanne and the committee for putting uh this program together this panel all, all the organizing that came into this uh so today i'm here to talk to you about the arab american action network i'm going to refer to it as the triple an i'm uh, going to talk about uh, some of the programs that we have uh who we are as an organization and what we do uh, then we're going to get into the muslim ban organizing uh and how we managed to do what we did at O'Hare airport and then from there we're going to shift on the implications uh, on the students, uh, the, the student community, uh, th- what is it? One, two, three Muslim bands later. Uh, so, first, uh, to talk about the Triple uh, the Arab American Action Network, uh, at the Triple uh, we strive to strengthen in the Arab community in Chicago and the southwest suburbs. Uh, we focus on building the capacity to be active agents for positive social change. Uh, as a grassroots nonprofit, uh, our strategies include community organizing, uh, advocacy, education. Uh, Providing social services, leadership development, uh, cultural outreach, and forging productive uh, relationships with other communities. Uh, uh, Our three main programs include youth services that operates out of Stevenson High School, Uh, the Family Empowerment Program, where we provide citizenship and uh, ESL courses, uh, and social services to meet the immediate needs of the community. And then uh, our youth organizing program uh, uh, that leads uh, the campaign to end racial profiling. So the Campaign to End Racial Profiling, which is mainly led by uh, Arab, uh, Latino, and Black uh, youth ages uh, 13 to 18, uh, focused on three main demands. One is the closure of the Illinois Fusion Centers. Uh, The Fusion Centers are uh, data warehouses uh, where a lot of the information gets dumped and then gets shared with uh, 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 federal and, and other law enforcement agencies. So there are connections here to to uh, the program that we're looking to end, the racist program called uh, SARS, which is uh, our second demand to end the use of the racist SARS program, suspicious activity reporting, uh, which clearly racially profiles our young people and, and, and it has other more implications, uh, which we could talk about uh, outside of this panel because it could take days to talk about that. And then our third uh, focus of that campaign is to end uh, the CVE program, the Countering Violence Extremism, which is clearly a racist program and that's also three days worth of conversation. Uh, some of other uh, campaigns that we're involved in that the AAAN is leading along with the campaign to take on hate uh, is holding uh, a Payless Township trustee accountable, uh, Sharon Brannigan. She had made some uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Arab and anti-Muslim uh, racist comments and uh, we've been organizing for the past four months to hold her accountable. Uh, we can also have a conversation around that or you can follow us on social media to learn about the updates and upcoming events. So now to get a uh, a little bit into the Muslim organizing. I think it is key and central to to answer one uh, question. What is this Muslim ban really about? Is it about national security as they claim it is? Keep in mind that there is uh, an an extreme and a brutal vetting process that's in place. Uh, Here are some facts which our current administration uh, does not like. Uh, The U.S. uh, has bombed or involved in destabilizing uh, every single one of the countries on the first Muslim ban, the seven countries, and and the entire region overall. So the U.S. was involved in wars in Iraq, uh, in Libya, uh, Syria, uh, and then we look at the aggression in in, in Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Uh, So I think it's key to to, to understand that our U.S. government and uh, uh, our uh, uh, foreign policy is creating these refugee crises, uh, causing people to flee their homes, and then we get a Muslim ban where Trump says we're doing all that to your countries, taking your resources, starting these wars, destabilizing your governments, but you cannot flee to the United States. Uh, and, and 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 clearly, uh, we we all know what's happening in Syria, we see what's happening in Yemen, and 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 we truly understand that this Muslim ban. Uh, along with the Jeff Sessions and his Department of Justice and the implications on the black community and then I sent the D- Department of Homeland Security and their implementation memos are all dangerous policies. So the Muslim ban is not the only dangerous policy and at the AAA we made that clear since day one. Uh, so our response uh, post the election has been focused on building a broad response team. Uh, so with the Muslim ban organizing, uh, we focused on creating a platform uh, 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 for, for Asian Americans, for Africans, for Latinx community, uh, uh, black, labor, and, and, and other oppressed folks to discuss uh, our collective resistance. So it was never just about the Muslim ban, because once again, it is a dangerous policy, but other uh, kind of uh, uh, policies impact a lot more people. And we will get into numbers as we talk about the impacts on students. Uh, f- for us at the AN, it was not just a tactical decision to build that broad response. It is actually a strategic uh, uh, sort of tactic, a strategic approach. Uh, the AAAN has a long decade, decades relationship with the immigrant rights community. And, and we also uh, uh, work directly in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives, especially with the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. So the Chicago Alliance are leading one of the most important struggles in the city of Chicago. It's around their CPAC uh, ordinance and their CPAC campaign. So a little bit about CPAC, not gonna get too much into details, uh, but CPAC stands for Civilian Police Accountability Council. So the Chicago Alliance is calling for the city of Chicago uh, to create an all elected uh, uh, council that monitors police crimes and, and holds police officers accountable. And of course, we know how the city of Chicago is responding to that. Uh, democracy doesn't work too well in Chicago. Uh, so now to get more into like the Muslim ban organizing, that they the executive uh, order was signed. Uh, as folks might have seen, thousands of people made it to airports all across the country. Uh, so our friends in New York, uh, at Drum, uh, Drum stands for Daisy's uh, Rising Up and uh, What? Desis Rising Up and Moving uh, led the, the protest at JFK. Uh, our sister organization, ARAC, uh the Arab Resource uh, uh, an Organizing Center led the protest at the San Francisco International Airport, and at the AAAN, we led the the protest at O'Hare, prompting a shutdown of parts of the International Terminal uh, 5, for those who are familiar with it. So uh, when we kind of called for the protest and made our way to the airport, uh, we went there with clear demands. Uh, Our demands were uh, 22 people are detained, uh, 22 people are freed, and then business goes back to usual. So it was strategic to say no business as usual, since you're interrupting people's lives by detaining these people who were in transit while this order was signed, we will interrupt the operation of O'Hare Airport. And uh, successfully by the time our rally ended five hours later of shutting down parts of O'Hare, all 22 detainees were freed. So uh, post that weekend, which was a Saturday and Sunday, uh, there was another strategic sort of approach to our organizing, which was taking these protests to the city of Chicago and shutting down major streets uh, on a weekday around 5 p.m., which I'm pretty sure OCAD could talk more about uh, that strategy and what it means to shut down business. Of course, people leaving the city at 5 p.m. around traffic time. But at the same time, uh, the courts were, were getting to work and putting a halt on the first Muslim ban. So as Trump's ban was being battled in court, clearly the judges and the courts uh, were quoted saying that the chaos at airports influenced their decision. So, this is all power to the people, all power to the organizing that we did on the streets. Yes, the courts have a role in this, but if it wasn't for the people's movements and, and the response from the people, then the courts would have never acted on the Muslim ban. Uh, so, post the Muslim ban organizing, which we know it is not over, there was a 1.0, a 2.0, a 3.0, and, and this administration is going to continue to pursue this Muslim ban. What have we been up to since uh, the organizing around the, uh, uh, the Muslim ban 1.0? So at the AAAN, uh, we made sure that we uh, conducted uh, a Know Your Rights workshops that were accessible to the community. So uh, our workshops were in Arabic and English, uh, attended by a variety of community members and, 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 and supporters. Uh, we also distributed widely thousands of Know Your Rights flyers. Some of them are on the table. You could also uh, pick up on your way out. And we also uh, put together these palm cards in Arabic and English, and they're foldable to go in wallets. And basically on these cards, it tells you your rights dealing, not just with uh, with ICE and, and, and the FBI, but also with local law enforcement. You don't, uh, they, y- I mean, you don't have to speak to them. You know, you can always hand them this card and say, speak to my attorney. Uh, there's a hotline on here that you can always call and report any activity of DHS, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, or ICE. And those are being distributed on a daily basis. Uh, and then I think it's important that we continue to hold these teachings. Uh, and use every single platform like we've, we're using today uh, to talk about this issue of Muslim ban and the impacts of the Muslim ban. So now to fast forward and talk about what does that mean to students? What are the impacts on students? Uh, we know that three bans later, the third ban, there's a lot of uncertainty around it. Uh, it is in courts right now being discussed. We don't know if it's going to be reinstated, if it's going to be halted. Uh, But this third ban, which replaced uh, the Muslim Ban 2.0, which had uh, a 90-day ban on six Muslim-majority countries, Uh, I'm going to say them again and and kind of speak about the added uh, three countries on here. So Syria, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, Iran, and the newly added countries are Venezuela, Chad, and North Korea. Uh, This next part, just to put it on the record, I am not a legal expert, but I've done some really great research. Uh, And I'm going to have to read some of this. Uh, And it might get a bit confusing, because I get confused myself. Uh, So there is a ban uh, of all travel from North Korea uh, and Syria. And that includes students, visitors, immigrants, non-immigrants. All travel is halted. Uh, For Venezuela, uh, the ban is, uh, there's a targeted ban limited to certain government officials and their family members. Uh, All Iranian immigrants, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well, uh, and most non-immigrant visitors will be uh, banned. Uh, Nationals from Iran traveling on student uh, F and M and exchange visitor J visas uh, will be able to enter the U.S. but subject to enhanced screening and vetting requirements. What does that mean? We already have a two-year kind of uh, uh, screening and vetting process in place, and now there's an enhanced sort of uh, screening and vetting requirement. Look, No one knows what that means. Uh, Non-immigrant visitors, including students and scholars from Somalia will be permitted to come to the US, but will also be subjected to the same kind of heightened screening. Uh, The new restrictions do not limit travel by visiting students uh, and scholars on FJ or M visas, who come from the other uh, three countries which are are Chad, uh, Libya, and Yemen. However, in suspending all travel on business and tourist visas, the B visas, uh, from these three countries, the new restrictions could provide students and scholars from coming to the U.S. for short-term visits. So what does all this mean? Uh, It means that researchers from Chad, Libya, Yemen may no longer be able to attend uh, conferences in the U.S. Uh, and and other non-immigrant travelers from additional countries named will be subjected to yet further enhanced screenings and vetting. So what is that approach helping fuel? So what is helping fuel is the ongoing certainty uh, felt by students and scholars and other travelers from across the world since the first Muslim ban took effect. So I have a chart here that I'm not going to get into too much details, but to kind of give you an idea of how many people are being impacted by this third Muslim ban. Are folks familiar with Palos Hills? Worth. So the population of Palos Hills and Worth combined of student community will be impacted. So we're looking at a number of 28,000 students. So those are international students and international scholars. And I think it's important to mention that the the 11th leading country of origin for international students uh, in the U.S., according to the Institute of International Education, is Iran. So Iran is, Falling just one country of origin below Mexico and one above the UK, and having international students here, and that number is looking at 12,269 international students, and 1,891 international visiting scholars. So look at the impact on higher education by eliminating 28,000 talented students and scholars, and 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 I mean the 28,000 that's a big number. Uh, so. If, uh, just like now that we've seen the numbers, uh, I think that from the two testimonies that we've seen, there's also an emotional implication on students. So the 28,000 students, uh, once they travel outside the US, their return to school, their return to class, is, is uncertain. They don't know if there's, if the new ban's gonna be installed, if they're gonna be stuck outside the country, and we've seen it with the first Muslim ban. And, and there's, uh, you know, a, a, a I think a doctor at uh, uh, Christ Hospital, which we are all familiar with, that was stuck in, in, in I believe, in, in Jordan on his way back, and he was of, uh, folks might help, he was of Syrian descent, right? Syrian descent that was stuck in the middle, East could not return, <laughs> and it took a lot of court cases to bring him back to, to, to his residency at Christ Hospital. And, and, and students are not only afraid to leave the country, but their families are not allowed to come and visit them and see them. And that's another emotional toll. Can you imagine coming to pursue your studies? You cannot attend uh, uh, weddings back home. Your family can't come and attend, you know, your graduation in the U.S. And we all know this. Like, walking across the is a big thing for us. And imagine your family not being there, not able to be there. Imagine your siblings who are graduating back home, and you're not able to attend their graduations, their birthdays. Uh, uh, and, 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 and clearly, there's a lot of implications to this new Muslim ban. So just to conclude here, uh, Clearly, these policies impact thousands of students. Uh, it impacts a lot of the students in this room, uh, our families, uh, our peers, uh, our neighbors. And, and, and there's a moral obligation for all of us to stand up and to fight these racist policies. And it is really important for students to bring this question to their campuses. You know, Talk to your peers, organize on your campuses, hold your administration accountable, and protect it in a commitment to protecting all students, not the selective few. Uh, and of course, support your, your, your local organizations who are doing the work. You know, on this panel, we have two of the of the most radical kind of grassroots community-based organi- uh, organizations in the city. So learn more about these organizations. Uh, visit our, our uh, uh, social media outlets and follow us and sign up for our uh, email listservs to receive all these updates. Uh, this is all I have for you. Thank you all so much for listening. And I'm gonna hand it to my uh, partner here from OK.
2: Can folks hear me okay? Is this thing on? I can't tell. Um, so just by a show of hands so I can get a read of the room, how many, here, how many folks here know what the DACA program is or have heard of the word DACA? Okay, some. Um, of those folks, how many think they could articulate really well what the DACA program is? A few more? Okay, cool. Um, and then, well, I think that gives me enough framework. Or, and then how many folks know who OCAD is in general? <laughs> cool, thank you. <laughs> All right, um, so that just helps me out a little bit. So I'll begin by talking about OCAD and the work we do, um, and then I'll talk a little <laughs> bit about DACA, because I feel like that's probably pertinent to this like campus and the students here. Um, and then, OCAD doesn't have a really organized response to the rescission of DACA, the DACA program, so I'll just tell you then about what the work is that we are doing in the city of Chicago. Um, And so OCAD stands for Organized Communities Against Deportations, right? And OCAD was born out of the work of the Immigrant Youth Justice League. And so the Immigrant Youth Justice League was young undocumented Chicagoans who started to organize against deportations and for, at the time, the DREAM Act, right? And so the DREAM Act is the birthplace of DACA, right? It was a piece of legislation that would have given young undocumented people similar benefits to what the DACA program has given a lot of young undocumented people. and it was born out of the case of a young undocumented person who was convicted of a DUI and he was placed in immo- and he was placed in deportation proceedings and what he found out pretty quickly was that his legal options were pretty limited because he had been convicted of a DUI and then he found out that when he went to nonprofits and immigrant rights organizations and elected officials they wouldn't actually support his case because he had been convicted of a DUI right so in terms today, we would probably consider him like, or er, we would probably consider him a dreamer, like is often referred to, right? Um, but at the time, no one wanted to support him because of his DUI conviction, and so his own friends started to organize around his deportation, right? They wanted to keep him in the United States where he belonged, and they were pretty successful, right? They um, they made his story really public. It got picked up by a lot of media outlets. A lot of elected officials who weren't going to support him started supporting him, right? Um, And the case became so prominent that Barack Obama himself mentioned it in a speech talking about like, this is a really uh, amazing young man and these are the kind of people we want to be supporting and keeping in this country. And he's stuck without like any sort of, um, and he's in deportation proceedings and he doesn't have a lot of legal options, right? And so IJIL for a long time organized around the DREAM Act, right, so to get um, a pathway to citizenship for uh, a lot of young, a lot of people that were brought to the United States um, without papers when they were young. Um, but they were also really clear on the fact that they didn't want to see more deportations, right? So then they started doing work on uh, when people were in deportation proceedings, IGL would support them uh, in their case. And then, um, and then that project became its own project called Organized Communities Against Deportations. And then as time went on, um, Barack Obama, uh, former President Obama signed the order that made DACA possible and he and then he started, instead of targeting young undocumented people, he started ta- targeting people with criminal records, right? And so those were a lot of the cases that OCAD started seeing. The Immigrant Youth Justice League sunsetted uh, and OCAD became its own organization. And a lot of the organizers from IGL are now in OCAD, right? And so OCAD is an organization that pushes back on deportations, uh, detention, and criminalization. And do folks here know the word criminalization by show of hands? Okay, decent amount. Um, so criminalization is like or the act of criminalization, like for example, if I was criminalized, it would be because the state says that I've committed a crime, right? Um, and because the state has actually, fought, has actually pursued my conviction of that crime, right? A lot of us do things that may be considered crimes or civil violations, right? And we're often not targeted for them, right? Um, but in the case of criminalization, people are targeted for them, right? And the people that we see often targeted uh, are black people, right, in the United States, brown people uh, and that can be a lot of times those are immigrants from Latin American countries or from Arab countries um, and we just see it in all sorts of cases right and we see it again with like queer people trans people all sorts of demographics right Uh, disabled people huge demographic as well and so uh, what we do at OCAD is we fight against those three right and we do it for anyone right so I think a lot of times we hear in the media about some people are deserving to stay, right? Like some people being hardworking, some people contributing to the US economy or what have you, and them deserving to stay even though they don't have papers, right? And then the rhetoric on the other hand will always be, well the people who are criminals should be deported, right? Um, We don't actually believe that to be true, right? Because we don't think there's a humane way to detain someone, to keep them in a prison and keep them in a cell and to deport them and to separate them from their family, right? So a lot of the cases and a lot of the people we work with are people with criminal records, right? And we're very clear on that. we believe that a world is possible where we don't have police, where we don't have prisons and we don't have detention centers and we don't have deportations, right? Um, And we believe that for a number of reasons. um, I think if you don't know the terms transformative justice or restorative justice, those would be good terms to look into um, and essentially that's just that people can change, right? And that harm can be restored and that often the systems we have in place don't restore any harm that's taken place, right? Survivors of all sorts of violence may not actually feel like they've gotten any justice or that any healing has happened if the person that committed the act of violence just c- it gets locked in a cell, right? And so that's OCAT as a whole, right? Um, and we do the we do individual campaigns one on one. We just missed Hénoveva, um, but this was a conference for Hénoveva right here, and d- we so Hénoveva is someone that's in deportation proceedings. Actually, no longer in deportation proceedings because we won her case, um, but someone who was in deportation proceedings until literally last week for several years. Um, And so we work with a lot of people like Kinoviva. They can come to us and these are people with limited legal options, right? If you have a good legal case, we'll refer you to an attorney. If you don't, we'll take your case, right? And we'll work with you and you have to join the organizing, right? So our membership is largely people that have been or are in deportation proceedings, right? Um, And they support themselves and they support us in the organizing. Uh, And then we also do policy work, right? Because in order to end deportations, we have to change er, immigration law, right? So we do policy work at a local level and at a national level. Uh, And that's from a rally, because we're trying to change the Sanctuary City Ordinance here in Chicago, uh, which I'll talk about more later. But so that's the work of OCAD. That's the birthplace of OCAD, right? And so when I talked about the Immigrant Youth Justice League, That was, those were the young undocumented people that made DACA possible, right? So, before Barack Obama signed the executive order that started the DACA program, he was very clear on the fact that he didn't want to do something like that. He told people that there, we had to go through Congress, we had to get some sort of legislation passed, that this wasn't the way it should work, I shouldn't have to sign an executive order, then he started saying it was unconstitutional, that uh, it would get challenged in courts, and he was like really clear on the fact that he didn't want this to happen, even though people were asking them to do this, because, the DREAM Act wasn't moving through Congress. And so what young undocumented people started doing is during his el- reelection campaign, they started going to his field offices and wearing caps and gowns and sitting in there and demanding that he do something, right? And being very clear on the fact that he wasn't doing anything, and being very clear on the fact that he was deporting millions of people simultaneously, right? Um, and so after all this public pressure, he actually did sign the executive order that made the DACA program possible, right? And the DACA program is uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And what that program does is it's an immigration option for people who were brought to the U.S. uh, when they were young without papers and who have lived in the U.S. Uh, There's a lot of requirements for it. Generally you have to be, um, you either have to have graduated from high school or at least be pursuing a high school degree. Um, And then you have to have pretty much a spotless criminal record uh, in order to be eligible for the DACA program. So out of the 12 million undocumented people that live in the United States, DACA has benefited 800,000 people, right? So a really small amount of the population. And so, uh, and all that to say is that the DACA program did not give people a pathway to citizenship, right? There was very, very small numbers of people that did end up getting residency through the DACA program by exploiting some loopholes. But other than that, people who were accepted into the DACA program got a work permit, they got a social security number, um, and they were able to use this stuff like attend college at a four-year university Uh, open bank accounts, uh, get health insurance, get uh, work in places that required work authorization, right? And so I would say that the stuff that students need to know about DACA um, is that young undocumented people made DACA possible, like I've said multiple (laughs) times uh, up here, right? And that I think any responses that are led by young undocumented people are, are what we should be following, right? I think there are going to be a lot of people in Congress, um, a lot of U.S. citizens, uh, that are going to tell us what we need to be doing, right, and how to best respond to it. But I think the people we should be listening to are the people that are most directly impacted, right? And so if a DACA recipient is telling you to do something, or if a group of DACA recipients is telling you to do something, we should be following their lead, right? Because without people like them, we wouldn't have had the, we wouldn't have had DACA to begin with. Um, and so if any of you saw Nancy Pelosi's press conference, like a month ago, two months ago, possibly. uh, She was shut down by a bunch of young undocumented people. Did folks see that in the news? Mm -hmm. Um, So Nancy Pelosi, huge Democrat. I don't know what her status is in the DNC right now, um, but very large picture, a very large member of the DNC, very prominent Democrat. And she held a press conference talking about like the Stocker response and young undocumented people shut it down, right? They stole the mic, they uh, hijacked her press conference. And they were very clear on the fact that the Democratic Party has deported 3 million people in the eight years Barack Obama was in office, right? And that whatever response was gonna come from the Democratic Party could not come with deportations, right? That they could not trade the DACA program or some version of it for a border wall, right? Um, And there were very mixed responses to that, right? Some people were really upset about this. Some people thought that these people were misguided and that they should be actually working more, or they should be thankful that Democrats are doing anything for them, right? So very mixed responses, Uh, about like a week or two weeks later, Nancy Pelosi came out and said that any similar program to the DACA program would not come with a border wall attached to it, right? So it worked, right? These young undocumented people were effective in their organizing, and I think we just need to keep looking at them uh, if if we're gonna ever figure this out. So as OCAD though, we don't have an organized response to DACA because our work, although we deal with or uh, because we work with undocumented people and because OCAD's leadership is undocumented, I'm not, I'm a US citizen, um, just to be clear on that. Um, We focus on deportations, detention and criminalization. right? And so we, right now what that means is that we don't see anything positive happening at the federal level, right? We don't expect Congress and Donald Trump to sign something that is good for immigrants, right? And that will lessen the number of deportations, right? Like that's not something we're expecting. So we're looking at local policy change, right? And so have folks heard the term sanctuary cities? Yes, it's in the news a lot. And so a sanctuary city, there's no clear legal definition of it, but it's essentially a city that will limit its cooperation with ICE. There is essentially no major city in the US that does not cooperate with ICE in some way, shape or form. It just says that they will limit it. And so each city has its own limits that it imposes. Some counties will do it. Cook County actually has a really strong ordinance. Mm. The city of Chicago, not so much. They're very clear on the fact that they will share information with federal government, um, even ICE, right? So if you are stopped by the Chicago Police Department and then um, your information is sent to the fusion centers that Bassam talked about, that information will easily be shared with ICE and ICE will know exactly where you live um, and what your name is and how old you are and all this other information about you, right? Um, so they're very clear on the fact that they're willing to do that. They're also very clear on the fact that they believe this rhetoric that is, in, that is everywhere essentially, that criminals deserve to be deported, right? Um, the weird thing is that their definition of criminal um, often doesn't actually mean that the person has been convicted of a crime. So what they define criminal as is someone with uh, an outstanding criminal warrant, right? So that means someone like a state's attorney thinks you've committed a crime and so they're gonna issue a warrant for it. You haven't been convicted of it. You haven't even been in a courtroom yet probably, but someone th- out there thinks you might have done it and thus the city of Chicago thinks you don't actually deserve any protections ICE. Um what? And then the second one would be if you've been convicted of a felony, right? And Sorry, I didn't even talk about the scope of the ordinance. So the way that they define sanctuary is essentially if you're detained or if you're arrested by CPD, they won't turn you over to ICE directly, except in these four cases, right? So if they arrest you and they see you have an outstanding criminal warrant, they'll hold you for 48 hours until ICE comes to get you. Uh, And then if you have a, a felony conviction and they stop you on the street and they arrest you for whatever reason and they see that felony conviction on your record, they'll hold you 48 hours until ICE comes to get you. The thing with that is that you can only be in CPD custody and have a felony conviction if you've served your time, right? Because CPD doesn't go to prisons and arrest people, right? They arrest people in the street, right? So if you have a felony conviction and you've been arrested by CPD, you've actually served your time, right? A judge or a a jury has said this is the debt you owe to society and you've paid that debt, and yet still the the Chicago Police Department and the city of Chicago doesn't think that you deserve to be in this country, essentially. And then we have, if you're included in a gang database, right? and gang databases exist everywhere, Chicago has one that we're doing a lot of work on right now. And so there are essentially not very clear guidelines on who gets put into the gang database and why, right? Um, It can be for something as simple as the clothes you're wearing, right? So if you're wearing a red and black hat and someone stops you on the street, they take your information, they can put you in the gang database and you'll never even know it because there's no way of knowing if you're in the gang database. And so we have a case right now of Wilmer um, Wilmer Catalan Ramirez and he is a Guatemalan immigrant who lives, on the, who lives on the Southwest side of Chicago who has been stopped by the p- police because he's brown and he lives on the Southwest side of Chicago, right? Um, and in, f- in his stops he was, at some point he was put in the gang database, right? That information was shared with ICE, right? Because the city of Chicago thinks that this is a definition of criminal and we're willing to share that information with ICE. ICE came to his home, even though he had been the victim of a shooting, like I think it was like five weeks earlier and he was paralyzed on the left side of his body, still is. Um, They came to his home, they arrested him, they broke his shoulder, they detained him and they gave him really shitty medical care in detention until he sued and a number of of hearings later, a judge mandated that he get better, better medical care. He's still in detention, he's just getting better medical care right now, right? And so what we found out was that, well, so his wife recorded the whole thing on Facebook, uh, put it on Facebook Live, got in touch with media outlets, found out about us, was put in touch with us, and we've been supporting her the whole time. And we've, uh, through through a legal project that we work a little bit with, we've been able to submit a lawsuit against the city of Chicago for having this uh, ordinance that allows his information to be shared with ICE, CPD for sharing his information with ICE, ICE for detaining him and breaking his shoulder on what are essentially false charges and uh, the detention center for giving him bad medical care. And so uh, what we found out now through this lawsuit, because the judge has mandated that certain things be turned over by certain parties, is that he's actually in the gang database twice, right? For two different times he was stopped by the police, and both of them are opposing gangs in his neighborhood, (laughs) right? And so this is, what, like, this is what, the, what the ordinance for the city of Chicago says is okay, right? Like they say, you're in a gang database, we don't know what that record looks like, we don't know who put you in there, we don't know for what reasons, but we're actually okay with sharing your information with ICE. So that's the third carve out, and that's a lot of the work we're doing right now, uh, specifically on that carve out. Um, and then the fourth one is escaping me right now, oh my goodness, criminal warrant felony. Oh yeah, and then if you're in, if you're currently in court proceedings for a felony, which again means you haven't been convicted of a felony, it just means that a state's attorney issued a warrant and right now you have a court case with either a judge or a jury where they're trying to figure out whether you've actually committed the crime. So those are the four exceptions of the city of Chicago. Um, And that's our largest campaign right now, specifically the gang database work. Uh, If any of you live in the city of Chicago and would love to learn more about that, we have a lot of organizing meetings come up, you can talk to me after this. Um, And and then that's the largest campaign we're working on. the sanctuary city, specifically the gang database, and Wilmer's campaign, right? Uh, trying to get him out of detention because he's still in detention and has been for several months now. I think it's been about seven months now. And if some of this is like very enlightening, um, or sounds powerful, or seems like stuff you want to get plugged into, or stuff that you want to su- get, or stuff that you want to support, um, we're ask you can like us on Facebook, and we're constantly asking people to call someone, or write to someone, or email someone, or sign a petition, right? And when you see that stuff, it's pretty easy to be like, what is this actually going to do, right? Like, if I call this person, are they going to actually listen to me? If I sign this petition, who does it get turned over to? We ask people to do that because it works, right? So in the case of Henobeva, who's not up there, um, she's a grandma from Berwyn who has been in, who was in deportation proceedings for a very long time. Henobeva was uh, arrested by a police department, I can't remember which one in the suburbs and turned over to ICE directly in her case, right? And then she was kept in detention for several months. She got out, she's been fighting her case for a long time, finally has a resolution to her case. Um, In her case, we were constantly (coughs) posting on social media telling people to call the field director for the ICE office in Chicago. So the Chicago ICE office controls the ICE operations in the entire Midwest. uh, I can't remember which state specifically. And there's a man there who has the power to stop any and all deportations in the midwest essentially right and so we're constantly calling him and telling him to stop the deportation of a specific community member so if you like us on facebook you'll see who that community member is you'll have the number to ricardo wong is his name and you'll be able to call him if you see a petition fill it out if we ask you to email someone please email someone um and then what Bessem said i think is really powerful as well in that you can organize you can organize locally and nationally right so you can do stuff on your campus to hold people accountable right If your campus says we want to support DACA recipients or we want to support Dreamers or whatever rhetoric they're using, you can actually hold them accountable to that, right? Mm -hmm. So if DACA recipients aren't eligible for financial aid in the state of Illinois, which they're not, then what is the campus doing to meet that gap, right? Like are they providing scholarships to young undocumented people so they can attend school here? Uh, And then nationally, there's all sorts of ways to plug in, right? Um, I would say Mi Gente is a really good national group that we're connected to, M-I-J-E-N-T, uh, not how you would traditionally spe- spell it in Spanish, but they're a wonderful group. Um, you can always get plugged into their work there and they'll keep you updated on all sorts of national work. Oh, there's Heno Damn, she's gone again, <laughs> um, but that's Heno um, And then I would say like really micro things that you can do on a one-to-one basis is when you hear people talking about like a hierarchy of immigrants, you should feel free to try to interrupt that, right? And try to change their thinking a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So if people are like, we need to keep uh, DACA recipients safe and we need to deport all these other people, right? We need to deport criminals. What defines a criminal, right? Um, and why do you think it's so important for that person to be deported, right? When there's all these other solutions that our criminal legal system here in the U.S. says that we have, right? And if that person is deported, will they stop causing harm to people when and wherever else they go, right? We don't know that, right? We don't, and chances are, if the only thing that's done to meet the to address the harm that's happened is changing their address, chances are that, that harm's going to keep happening. Um, and that's about everything I have. So thank you.
0: Can we give it up for Bassim and Rodrigo one more time? <laughs> um, I hope you all found the information to be uh, valuable. Please talk with your peers, your classmates, encourage discussion in your classrooms about these two important topics and um, organize with your student clubs. We have a resource table over there. Uh, We have information about ALAS, um, Alliance of Latin American Students, the Arab Student Union, the Muslim Student Association. As Rodrigo said, we have to follow the example of all of you. If you set the pace and the tone, we will follow you. So do this in your student organizing groups and in your clubs. Um, I wanna make a couple other announcements. We are gonna open it up for Q&A, so please stay put. Uh, We have till 12.15, right? So don't go anywhere. Um, the, our events for the rest of the month, please pick up a flyer for the Arab Heritage Month. We do have other events throughout the month, so grab yourself a flyer. Um, the POM card, um, information on how to protect yourself, um, things about Dhaka, about the Muslim travel ban, AAAN and OCAD bought some resources with them, so pick those up as well. We also have a really um, other important um, events taking place on campus on tuesday november 21st uh, in the fogelson theater we have sahar francis who is the uh director of um at and she's coming to talk about the palestinian political prisoner situation um, in palestine uh, many of you may have been following the 40 plus day hunger strike that took place uh, several months ago Um, The Palestinian political prisoners went on a hunger strike to um, demand that some of their basic human needs are met while in prison. So if you're interested in learning more about that, please pick up the flyer that's on the resource table. Again, it's here on campus um, in the Fogelson Theater on November 21st. Finally, the bookstore is here selling some amazing books. We had an author conversation and reading yesterday um by Sahar Mustafa and Naveen Sha'abna, and their books are in sale uh, are on sale in the back so please visit uh that table and purchase your book um so right now what I'd like to do Nina has a mic and we're going to open it up for Q and A
1: um hi Rodrigo right Can you speak a little bit? Because what I've learned recently is we talk about private prisons. The focus on private prisons has shifted now. Mm -hmm. So now what I've learned is that the private prison industry is now investing in prisons for undocumented immigrants. Can you speak a little bit to that? Have you guys had any work with that? Do you know anything about that?
2: Yeah, so we as, so OCAD is a completely volunteer run group um, so this isn't my day job I don't get paid to do this right I do this because I care about it Um, so all of us essentially have day jobs some of the members of OCAD in their day job have done work specifically around detention and working against private prisons and prisons in general. In Oakhead, because we're Chicago-based, people generally in Chicago and the surrounding areas don't get sent to private prisons because there aren't any super readily available in the area. Um, But you're absolutely right, right? Um, A lot of immigration detention centers are private prisons, right? And so what we'll often see, or there's like a really, uh, one that a lot of people get sent to around here is McHenry County Jail. And so that's your typical jail, right? And then they also have a separate, or and then they also have um, a contract with ICE that says that they will um, keep, that they'll keep immigrants there while they're in deportation proceedings um, or until they get some sort of resolution in their case. And what, even in that center where it's not a private prison, people have to pay a lot of money for really basic needs, right? So in McHenry County, if you have a loved one in McHenry County, uh, in immigration detention there and you wanna visit them, you can't actually see them in person. You have to go to the building and you have to look at them through a screen, right? They have a little handheld tablet and you look at it and they look at it and you have to go there and you have to pay them a fee to look at your loved one on a tablet, right? Uh, if you wanna talk someone to someone on the phone, you have to pay a fee to talk to them on the phone. Uh, commissaries and commissaries exist in all prisons essentially um, but in immigration detention they're often uh, really jacked up in prices more so than prisons and a commissary is like if you want this specific toiletry or if you want this item that's not readily available to you in the prison someone puts money in your commissary and you decide to buy that there right uh, in immigration detention those rates are even higher right so it's like people paying like ten dollars yeah. for a bar yeah. so stuff like that um, and so People are making money off the detention of immigrants, right? And Congress has actually mandated that there's a minimum number of beds that we need filled every single day, Mm -hmm. right? And what's the motivation for that, right? Other than for profit, right, when we're constantly opening new private prisons. Um, And so right now that number is 34,000. The actual number of immigrants in detention is in the 40s or 50,000. So they're not really concerned about meeting that 34,000 quota for the moment, right, or falling below it. Um, and the private prison industry complex has shifted a lot of its uh, (laughs) focuses to immigrant detention, just because there was an order um, under the Department of Justice like a year or two ago that said that they would start phasing out private prisons at the federal level. Um, Prisons though, not immigrant detention centers, right? So they shifted a lot of their focus to immigrant detention. Um, Prisons now, I believe that order's been rescinded, right? So there's not actually any more of of a plan to phase out the private prisons, but looking at the administration's rhetoric, the private industry, private prison industry complex still feels like that's where the money's gonna be for them, right? So they're looking at uh, starting more contracts with local county jails or local prisons or just opening up new prisons.
0: Thank you. Other questions?
2: I'd like to thank both of you for coming today. Very enlightening. Um, Basim, I was wondering if maybe you could share a little information about the uh, protest against uh, Trustee Brannigan and where that is right now, and maybe uh, explain the demographics and why it's such a big deal here in this area, and then maybe encourage uh, some of the people here to participate.
3: I almost lost it here. Uh, So uh, Sharon Brannigan is a trustee at the Palos Township. So the Palos Township includes uh, uh, all our parts of uh, Palos Hills Heights, uh, Palos Hills Heights Park, Hickory Hills, uh, Worth, parts of Orland Park, uh, Willow Springs, and I'm missing one. So it is this area right here in the third district where 30% of the population are of Arab or Muslim descent. Uh, so this trustee was making very anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racist comments. And uh, she sits on a board of, uh, uh, with, with four other trustees uh, who clearly have not taken a stand on her comments. Uh, she had, bef- before, you know, behind her First Amendment right that is her uh, right to free speech, to go after Middle Eastern students, you know, to, 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 cl- to have this claim, which also we always want to avoid the, the good versus bad immigrant because that's not the narrative that we're pushing. But her claims were that the schools are filling up with uh, undocumented or with Middle Eastern students without proper documentation. Uh, she claimed that women who wear the hijab, the Muslim veil, uh, are not dignified, uh, and, and other claims. So there was kind of like an uprising in the community around these comments. And of course, we see what's happening all over the country with, with the kind of racist rhetoric, uh, with this administration kind of an emboldenment of, of white supremacy in their attacks. I mean, it was evident in Virginia. And the response from the community is to go after this trustee. Uh, She refused to to apologize to the community. And once that refusal came in, we demanded her resignation. So for the past four months, we've been packing, uh, rallying uh, at the general meetings. Uh, The township have been trying to avoid the community. So they've postponed the last meeting three times. Uh, With no notices, they hold special secret meetings to kind of get their work done, uh, because we've been interrupting business as usual. Hundreds of community members, many in this room have been attending these. Uh, The next uh, uh, township meeting was supposed to be the 25th. They postponed it to the 20th. So we we assume it's gonna be the 20th and their kind of excuse was we can't find a venue that's uh, gonna accommodate all community members because the community is taking a stand that we were not gonna host this township with this racist trustee on our premises. Uh, I know Moran Valley was one of those schools. the school on 111th, I forgot the name of it, uh, Stag, uh, the library, uh, the Chateau Del Mar, the the Hickory Hills Country Club, all refused to host this meeting. And now they're taking it back to the township on 108th and Roberts Road. So it is your community, be there, and, and make sure you complain. And follow our campaign page, so. Thank you. We have a question up front, Mary. Thank you, also gentlemen, this is very edifying. Um, So my question is, to play kind of a little, because of course I'm
1: in agreement with both of you, how do we allay the fears then of people who maybe lack the understanding of these, because obviously these are very nuanced topics. There's a lot of things I learned from you that I had
3: no clue about um, from both of you. So how do we allay people's fears about security? Because that seems to be sort of the, as soon as you throw out the, the term, anything having to do with national security or people's fears of any kind of, whether it's terrorism or crime or whatever, you get them. They're sold. So what, how, how do we combat against that? And it's a very general question, so take it in any direction you want to, but. Yeah, I think the, when we say national security, I, I think what does it mean, like the national security and the threat of terrorism? Uh, if we look at the mass shootings in the US, and this is not to battle any narrative out there, uh, mass shootings have been conducted by white middle-aged white males. So do we hear any rhetoric saying we need to ban all middle-aged white males from movie theaters, from schools? So, so I think we have to look at the facts here and, and, and kind of the origin of these policies. Uh, so the policies that we hear and the rhetoric that we hear from the administration, and not just the, the, the Trump administration, previous administrations, uh, was always sort of uh, a factor to, to justify policy. So an example, uh, Trump goes out and claims that Mexican immigrants are rapists and and, and criminals and gang members. And then the next campaign promise was to build a wall. So I mean, is this how we justify it? And then every time we hear about, like you know, from from their their office to to report uh, crimes committed by immigrants, the voice office. So it's all fear mongering that's building up within you know, you know th- Americans, people in the United States. So ways we can battle that is to state the facts, educate people about our community, and in all honesty, hold space. You know, we are here, we're gonna be loud, you know, we, you know we're gonna continue to organize and we're gonna continue to meet the needs of our people. This would be my response, state the facts, continue to organize and educate our peers.
2: Yeah, I think like the first thing that comes to mind is like the immediate thought of like well, like what does security mean, right, and like for whom, right, Um, when Besson talked a lot about like the violence that the U.S. is responsible for in other countries, right, that then drives people to try to come to the U.S. or just leave their homes, right. Um, So when I think of security, I like often think about like security from what and like for for whom. Um, I don't think that like the U.S. is very invested in the security of people outside of the U.S. Right, um, and I think the average American also isn't really invested in that when like you really get down to it. Um, so I think like thinking about like what like who we're actually trying to keep safe uh, changes that question a lot. Um, and then I think also like the s- way we think about violence in our society is like a very limited scope. Like it's like if it's not physical violence, then like it's not violence essentially, right? But so we'll say like. So, like, if we use like something like gender, right? If like a trans person is beat up essentially because they are trans, then that's considered violent, right? And we like all understand and accept that, right? If Congress tries to take away the health care of all trans Americans, we don't like immediately equate that as violence, right? Like, we may equate that as bigoted, we may equate that as like uh, wrong, even or like have a visceral reaction to it, but you don't see media outlets saying that that's a violent act, right? When people will actually die from that, right? And a lot more people will die from that than like one person being like physically assaulted. Um, So yeah, I always just try to think about violence in like a lot of different ways, um, or even just like emotional and social violence, right? So like if someone is detained and deported and they're the primary breadwinner for their family, that's an act of violence against their family, right? Like what happens to their children? What happens to their partner? What are the outcomes for those people? Do they actually lose lose years off their life at the back end of it because they didn't get proper nutrition when they were growing up? Stuff like that. Um, So I think like how we just think about security and how we think about violence changes a lot. Um, And I think if we address a lot of different things then we would have to worry less about like who's coming after us or like things like that, you know?
3: Go ahead, Besson. Yeah, I also just want to add about failed policies that kind of feed into this narrative, like NCIRS, which was a special registry instilled uh, in the George Bush era where uh, Middle Eastern males, ages 18 to 64, uh, from uh, 21 countries, predominantly Arab countries, had to register, so what did that program lead to? Uh, It led to 80,000 males being registered, uh, 15,000 deportations, and not one conviction on terrorism charges, so like th- all these policies that they're instilling, they're just failed policies. They're not created to secure the U.S. or, or secure the, the the American soil. I think if we want to secure the American soil, we need to invest in the immigrant communities, invest in programs like after-school programs, uh, invest in healthcare. Let's invest in education. You know, like why why do we have to pay hundreds of thousands of thousands to attend schools, and then like like even undocumented immigrants don't have trouble with access to schools. So instead of investing in these failed programs, I think we should invest in a social well-being. So let's look at it as a, as a sort of a public health issue versus a public kind of fear and, and, and a crisis and, and criminal issue. I think that would be a way to look at it as well, too.
0: Okay. Um, Suzanne's gonna be coming up to make some closing remarks, but I do wanna say I think bassem and Rodrigo are gonna hang out for a few minutes afterwards so you can approach them and speak to them and get some advice one-on-one or ask them some questions. I personally want to thank you both for coming. Um, I really appreciate everything you shared today.